Joey Clark is in studio with us today. You definitely don't want to miss out. He is the host of News and Views on News Talk 93.1 from 9 to noon in Montgomery. Uh, Glad to have him coming in talking about his story, how he became uh, uh, an award-winning radio show host um, from humble beginnings and an interesting background. So we'll be talking to him about that and just the state of politics and culture in Alabama. Stay tuned. You're being lied to more than any generation in the history of the world. Media drives culture. Culture is what drives politics and public policy. We want to have good journalism that lasts. Welcome, everyone, to 1819 News, the podcast. We've got a great episode for you today. I'm Brian Dawson, host of the podcast, CEO of 1819 News, joined by my lovely co-host, Mr. Ray (laughs) Mellick. The editor in chief here at 1819 News. How you doing? Yeah, Ray? people can't see below the desk. I'm actually wearing jeans, which yeah. is a first. I'm, it, it's I'm, his Hannity. Yeah, I was going to say. Normally, as you know, I'm, I usually wear a suit. I like to wear a suit, but today it's election day, so I'm wearing my jeans. Yeah, in case things go down, you've got your jeans on. Yeah, so it's got the cowboy look. I like it. I, on the other hand, always wear jeans with a <laughs> suit jacket, and rarely do I wear a suit. It happens, but it's not often. Once or twice a year. And also, uh, looking dapper as all get out with that wonderful hat we have in studio with us, Mr. Joey Clark. Joey, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. How are you doing, gentlemen? Tremendous. <laughs> so Joey, Joey Clark is the host of News and Views on Blue Water Broadcasting's News Talk 93.1 in Montgomery. He is the highest rated news talk show uh, in Montgomery. He's also an award-winning uh, radio show host. He's going to start blushing here pretty soon. Keep buttering him up. Um, so what What was um, you most recently won? What was the award that you won? It was a uh, Abbey Award? Abbey Award, the Alabama Broadcast Association. Yeah, yeah. That's there a big go. deal. It is. And so uh, it's been really cool just to watch. I've been in radio my whole career. I've been more in the national radio scene. But to watch Joey kind of go from a young guy that I didn't know. I met him recently. But watching him kind of uh, climb the ranks through being a, a producer to kind of on-air into having his own radio show and winning Abbey Awards. So we're going to talk a little bit about his story, uh, how he got into radio, uh, and then some of the you know politics. So today, as we're recording this, it's election day, but by the time you guys see this, uh, the damage will be done, and uh, <laughs> elections will be over, and we'll all know our fate as you're watching this. So we don't know what that fate's going to be right now, um, but by the time you guys watch this, you will. But as Blake Shelton what's saying, this can't be good. Yeah, this can't <laughs> be good. I'm with Ray. Yeah. So, but yeah, we'll um, talk to, to Joey about his story, and then we'll talk a little bit about just the the nature of radio in politics. Uh, was this political season different than others in the past that you've been a part of, uh, and things like that. So before we jump in, I always want to tell you guys where you can find us. Um, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. Go there, subscribe. Click the bell to make sure that you're getting notifications when we have new content coming out. Leave a five-star review. Tell everyone how much you love the podcast because we know you do. And also go to 1819news.com. This is the most important. And press that subscribe button. And you will be uh, asked to put in your email address. We won't sell your information. It costs you nothing. And what you'll be subscribing for is the daily newsletter. And so every morning at 745, except today we were a little bit late, but usually at 745, Uh, In your inbox, you will receive the daily newsletter like a morning edition thrown on your front steps with all the news you need, all the opinions that matter, and all the podcasts that we produce coming uh, straight to you in your inbox every morning so that you can stay informed. That's it. And again, you don't have to do anything other than your email. No address, no zip codes, no nothing else, and uh, it won't cost you a dime. That's what I'm talking about. That's value right there, guys. That's it. It's, it's easy to provide value when it doesn't cost anything. That's right. So <laughs> we feel really good about it. You're going to get twice the value of whatever you're paying for. That's this. right. At yeah. least. At least. At least twice. So, well, with that, we'll jump right in. So, Joey, uh, talk to us a little bit about where you grew up, where you're from, your story, how you got here. All right. I was born and raised in Montgomery, Alabama. Exciting. There are a lot of Montgomerys apparently around the country. You got to be careful when you're Googling Montgomery. Montgomery, Alabama. Born and raised, uh, and I, to get into family stuff, it, it helps explain the radio career, I believe, because it was a winding road. I didn't expect to be in radio, didn't go to school for it. Uh, my mom's side of the family is Air Force, and so I always say on the radio that my grandfather on that side, who's still with us, still alive, see him every weekend, he grew up in kind of the Polish ghettos of Newark, New Jersey. Uh, pretty humble beginnings. They, um, they're actually... I, I'm going to share the story that his uh, 
his father, who I knew, Papa Joe, who I'm named after, uh, actually tore up a letter to some big technical school. Said, you're going to stay here and you're going to work. Grandfather punched him in the face. They didn't talk for a while. Went and joined the Air Force. Then went to officer school, and he's been all around the world. Uh, My other side, the family, my dad's side, uh, grew up in Andalusia in sort of a farmhouse with no running water. They had a true outhouse. I think they were hog farmers. So, you know, Polish ghettos in Newark, hog farmers in Andalusia. I come from good stock. And then out from there, it was a very small. I, I lived almost in an enclave in Montgomery. My parents were not socially active, so to speak. But they put me through Catholic school from preschool all the way through 12th grade. And there was a small little school, great education. But I didn't really know what I was going to do. And I hit that senioritis that carried into college. So in college, I kind of searched around. I always found politics intriguing. I liked the drama of it, like watching the debates. I can remember watching Bush and Gore and thinking, well, I kind of like Bush really is the guy you want to have a beer with. I've never had a beer in my life. At, you know, at like 12 years old watching that, but he's the guy you want to hang out with. And then I started to become a little more uh, sophisticated and understanding political philosophy. That's what I got my degree in. But I did not expect to jump into talk radio or even politics. I, I worked on a few local campaigns and I did not like it. Yeah. I, I did not enjoy it. And in particular, what uh, some candidates at the Senate state auditor, secretary of state level will talk about uh the feeling of losing really is miserable to be yeah. on the losing campaign, to be in that room after all those months of hard work, all that money spent. And you're like, well, and I hated that feeling. And I just didn't enjoy canvassing. I didn't enjoy the the retail politicking. So I thought I was about to go live in New Orleans with my dad and work bar back somewhere and write or whatever, you know, just live that life. And a guy named Dan Morris messaged me who I'd interned with in college on his radio show and said, do you want to be my producer and help, you know, get me coffee, pick out the news in the morning? I said, sure. It went from speeding through this, me sitting there kind of just helping Dan with the news, getting his coffee to the, the guy who was running the board at the time, looked up during a break. Y'all have done enough radio, y'all know, where you hit a break, you've got limited time. Yeah. You know, five minutes maybe at the most, unless it's political season, then it's eight minutes. And... He We hit a break, and the producer pushes back from the board, and he goes, guys, I hate to do this, but I really have to go to the bathroom. Joey, can you run the board? I'm like, yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> and, like, I was hooked. I remember, like, our phone system was uh, very wonky back then. Like, it was janky. But it was it, I was kind of hooked. And to bring it all together, uh, there are two big reasons I think I am in talk radio other than Dan Moore is pulling me in because my role expanded at News Talk. Helping Dan, producing Dan's show, to producing and working with Greg Budell in the afternoons, the afternoon drive show, to doing a public affairs show, to helping produce several other pre-recorded shows. Then I finally got my own nighttime show. But I think what brought it all together was, well, the guy inspired me to do radio explicitly was Glenn Beck. And it wasn't necessarily Glenn's uh, sermonizing, though he was great at it and still is good at it. It was when him, Glenn, Pat, Stu would just give each other crap. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember vividly this one, I was driving in Auburn, still in college, and I heard Glenn Beck, he was obviously delirious and haven't done this now for 10 years. I get how that could happen. I can't imagine on the national level though, but he's obviously delirious and he starts confusing funnel cakes with funnel clouds. And it was just him messing up and getting made fun of by, his, I'm like, I want to do that. Mm-hmm. But then tying this all back to family, I don't think many folks had that family that came together because both sides were really close to one another. And one way I could put it is I have on my Aunt Karen, my dad's sister, married a man named Dave. He's, uh, for a lot of reasons, he's an atheist Jew. Never went to you know synagogue or temple. His dad was one of the only family members who survived the Holocaust. My other uncle, my mom's oldest, the oldest of that side of the family, my Uncle Bill is a monsignor in the Catholic Church, and he's now running the cathedral down there in Mobile. And so to see the monsignor, and the atheist Jews sit there and argue about not just religion and, and but politics, economics, and all these people from all these walks of life. I can remember being very young, like eight, and sitting there listening to them. And I didn't want to play with the kids. I didn't want to do something dumb or childlike. I wanted to listen to them talk about the big issues. So I think it all came full circle. I sort of fell into this career. Interesting. Would you say that you hate politics more or less than you did when you finished at those campaigns? More. 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 Isn't it weird that we, it's like a, a fly drawn to the, you know, zapper 
a little bit, the politics, but I think it's, and it's really because to me, <clears throat> so many people aren't involved in politics because of how easy it, it's, it, it's hated for a reason. It's disgusting. It's vile. It's terrible. Uh, it's cutthroat. Seems like the bad guys always win at least more often than not. Um, it just, it just sucks. And so, um, but if if we don't stay involved and we don't get involved, then we're going to get even worse results. And so um, it's this weird, almost like, you know, sticking your finger in a dam to keep it from exploding. Almost. It's like, it's not fun, but we have to do it. Otherwise, you know, it's going to be even worse. So, you know, uh, I, I spent 30 years in sports. We've talked about that before and, and uh, love sports. Don't yeah, get yeah. me wrong. But it's funny. It's almost the same thing. We used to joke or I used to say, um, if it, you know, if it wasn't for the fans, this would be a great job, right? <laughs> uh, now the fans are what makes the job great because sure. of the attention that they give the, the, the sports and they fill the stadiums and all that excitement. They read and it's a little stuff. bit of the same thing here with, right. you know, politics would be good for the people who are involved in politics because we need that. It's a necessary evil, if you will, of our government. Uh, but it is, it, it, people get so caught up in it sometimes that it really sucks all the joy and, and excitement out of out of whatever you're discussing and otherwise really good issues. Well, and I think I've become, it's not necessarily hatred because it is what it is. Uh, and you learn to see, okay, these are the rules of the game and how people play the game. I'm definitely a political cynic. I don't think I'm a cynic about all of life, uh, but there's a great George Carlin line said, if you scratch a cynic, you'll see a disappointed idealist. And so yeah. I had like these moments where I still love, especially the ideals and the values and principles this country is founded on. I love having the political discussions stretching all the way back to the Greeks, to Machiavelli. To, I love the political theory. And then you come down from the ivory tower and you go, this mailer where Mike Durant and Mo Brooks look like the two of the three stooges is what's going to change. <laughs> and so it makes you uh, cynical about how things work. But I, I'm, I'm trying not to let that bleed into other aspects of life because I think life is much bigger and should be much bigger than the political scene. Yeah. And I know in 1819, we are, uh, at least I know I am, I'm pretty sure Ray is, um, ready for the political season to be over because it, you know, twofold what we want to do. We want to make sure that the people of Alabama know what's going on, uh, all across the state, no matter what, including politics. Um, and, and that we want to cover politics as well, if not better than everybody. But we also want to be celebrating the state because at the end of the day, the reason we fight, the reason we go through the pain and suffering in the political season, we fight with all we have in the political season is, is citizens, um, is, is because there's something worth preserving. And so if we're not enjoying that thing that we're trying to preserve, um, we are just going to get bitter and we're going to get burnout and everything else. And I'm glad that the political season only comes around every four years. Um, or two or two. Yeah. With Senate <laughs> and how that works out in the Congress. And, well, stuff. and it's one thing I, I always try to like, there's a great, there are a couple of great lines about being a cynic. Uh, one is, uh, it's a man who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. And yeah. I think when you constantly look at the negative, that can really hurt you. But another one, and this is how I'm not this way with the rest of life, just to reiterate that point. But a, a cynic is a man upon seeing a flower arrangement looks around for a coffin. And so, like, it's good to be reminded of how dirty things can be and how the – I really, the older I've gotten, I've become less of an idealist into cynicism, into what I would – and I'd say this unironically, I'm a Machiavellian. You can look at what people sell you. You can look at what people claim to believe, uh, whether at whatever level of politics, but then you've got to watch their actions and understand the ulterior motives. of They're selling something, yeah. and, you know, truth and advertising, right? Yeah. So I think there's people who are mean-spirited mean spirited by nature. They're just ugly, ugly people, mean-spirited. They were ugly their whole lives. They were ugly in school. They were ugly in college, you know, as far as just being mean-spirited and hateful and malicious. Um, and then I think there's what I would say, good-hearted people. Now, it, it, at the core of my spiritual belief is we're all depraved. We're all born radically depraved from birth and in need of a Savior. However, there's still some people that enjoy being mean and ugly and malicious, and there's other people who don't have a stomach for it. And I prefer to surround myself with the people who don't have a stomach for it because I don't like deception. I don't like intentional deception. You know, I've picked up the 48 Laws of Power to read it on a couple different occasions in my life, and I get a page into it in the Art of Seduction. I get a page into it, and he's literally talking about intentional deception, and I just throw yep. the book away. Absolutely. It's happened twice now. I'm like, I really need to read that. I know. Get a page into it, and I'm like, this is this is absolute. This makes me want to throw up. The fact that there's human beings that actually sit and plot and intentionally deceive just is, is crazy to me. And then I realize that <clears throat> politics is the business of intentionally deceiving. Like, that's what the whole thing is. Seen, unfortunately, has turned into. It's been taken over by 
people who are professional deceivers, it seems like. And I'm not necessarily talking about all the politicians, but the people who are in the business. Hmm. You see some of the techniques and some of the strategies and the way that things are done and the things that are said. It's just like, man, I, I, I get that there's a lot of power on the line. There's a lot of money on the line. There's a lot of, you know, ability to make decisions that are going to affect things on the line. But it is it is ugly. Well, and I hate to be the Pollyanna here, but I'm good compared to you two. I, I, you know, and people that know me would be shocked at that. But I, I, I understand where you're coming from. I tend to think, I think most people, not everybody, but I think most people go into it for the right reasons. But I do think power is seductive, and it has that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, as the saying goes. Uh, I have watched too many people get into politics with the right motives and try to do the right thing, but then the lifestyle takes over, and suddenly it becomes more important to maintain that lifestyle than it does to try to do the right thing, even if it costs you the next election. Yeah, uh, real guts is is a is a political leader who is willing to do the right thing even if they don't get reelected, and we just don't have enough of those. And that's what I think concerns yeah. me. And it's one reason why I absolutely believe in in term limits, uh, even though I also understand the reason not for term limits. I think the benefit of term limits outweighs the reasons for not having term. And, limits. and if you had if you had term limits, the argument for not having term limits wouldn't be there anymore because no one would have that seniority. Well, no, no, no. The, the, the argument against uh, for the reason if you have term limits, what you're doing is turning government over to bureaucrats that are there eternally. Okay. For example, mm-hmm. if you go to Washington, D.C., there are committee members, uh, committee staff members who are they're there regardless of who's in office. And it's so easy to go to Washington, D.C., which I know better than Montgomery. Uh, and you go up there and you go, hey, I want to do this. And a staffer will look at you and go, no, we don't do that. That isn't huh. done. Well, if you're a strong elected leader, you go, yes, I'm the one elected. This is what I want done. If you're weak, you go, oh, I didn't know that. Okay. So if people are constantly changing, the power belongs to the permanent staffers. Okay. That's, the, that's why term limits can be a bad thing. On the other hand... I think I would rather have the paralysis of people going up there and knowing I'm only going to be here for two or six or 12 years, whatever we can all discuss what term limits ought to be, and then leave. At least you get a a new wave of people going up there trying to do the right thing, knowing they're not going to be there forever. I think that outweighs the risks of the other side. Yeah, and one of the things I hear often is, though, it's like, well, I finally am just, you know, second and in command true. on this yeah, committee, right. and now I can actually make a difference, so I'm going to stay. I've heard that as well. But if everybody's leaving at the same That's sort what of I'm time, saying. Yeah. Then, then there's no, you know, and the problem now becomes um, you're not putting people in charge of committees that, that, for example, if I've got the Veterans Committee, I ought to have a guy with a military background, mm-hmm. right? Unfortunately, too often, both parties, it comes to who's raised the most money that wants that committee assignment. But if you're up there for, and again, I think 12 years is perfect, then you go, hey, Brian, we're going to put you in charge of whatever your specialty is. Joey, you've got, well, I wasn't going to say that. (laughs) But Joey, communication, you know, FCC, you're a radio guy, so we're going to put you in charge of that. You know, and, and then, Ray, you can just be part of the sportsman's committee or whatever it might be. But And then you're only there for a while. So I do think that's one of the weaknesses, too, is that too much of the time we put people in positions of authority where they don't have the expertise to be there. And and that's a lot of our issues as well. well and real quick, I, I want to say I agree with you completely that the vast majority, 90-something percent of people who get in politics are doing it for the right reasons. They're earnest, especially if they get to big positions of power. They're often very uh, charming, intelligent, talented people. And I think it's one line I've been using a lot lately. It's not me. It's a guy named James Burnham. That politics is force and fraud, but the force need not be violent. If it is violent, you're probably doing something really wrong and not as powerful as you should be. And the fraud need not be conscious. Mm-hmm. So I think people do get seduced by that power, and they think, well, if I just – one more cycle, I'll be the head of the committee. I'll be able to change things. And and to bring up this guy Burnham again, and after the war in like the early 40s, he wrote a book called The Managerial Class, I believe. And I think that's what's happened with our government is – there are so many things to manage, and people are doing this for practical reasons that the elected officials can't control everything. They most, I think, Senator John Kennedy said this the other day that most of the governing is done by the administrative staff. Yeah, and that's where I'm arguing about the administrative staff being there permanently. Right. They have too much power. I, I don't know. I mean, I've talked to guys that go, "Well, you can just go in and fire them all." Well, that's a lot easier said than done. But, but nevertheless. And as I was in Montgomery, one of the things that hit me, and Brian and I have talked about this, and you and I may have as well on radio, 
I think the problem is a lot of these guys go there and the only people they see on a regular basis are the lobbyists who are pushing for a certain position and they become your friends and you hang out with them and you just don't interact enough with and the it, people that elected you to go. It doesn't hurt that they're go. donating to your campaign. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's, as I said one time, I said, well, you know, the people need lobbyists, except that the lobby, the people, that are, the people's lobbyists are the elected officials we're sending down there. <laughs> so they're not doing their job as lobbyists. Yeah. We need to fire them and hire new lobbyists yeah. uh, if they're not doing their job. Yeah. And I would say, going back to what I was saying about um, the, the sick, cutthroat, malicious people, I'm not talking about the people running for office, though I've probably said that about them before. <laughs> Um, I do tend to agree that the people are starry eyed when they start and they are trying to do something. And then the people who are politicians do get sucked in. They like the status. They like the Mr. Senator, the Mr. Representative, sure. the Congressman. They like that. And then they kind of get sucked into it. I'm talking about the political operatives. I'm talking about okay. the people, the political consultants, the political operatives, like they're literally their strategy. They know that they are going to be intentionally deceptive from the start, they know that they're going to do whatever it takes. And, and that's the name of their game is to win at all costs. Because they're paid to win an and election. They're paid to win an election. Yeah. And, and then you go through, there's a site that my buddy showed me the other day, and you can go see how much some of these people make. One of the big consultants made like $2.8 million this last you know go round. Another one made like 500000 It's like, that person made $500,000 this last year? Right. I mean, it's just, and it's crazy. And you see how these people operate, and they just latch on, especially if there's like a candidate that has money. And it just the whole thing is just, ugh. Yeah. It's just... You know, uh, I hate it. And but and again, because it's ugh, good people are repelled by it and then only yeah. bad people are in it. And then when there's only bad people in it, it gets worse. And so good people are just going to have to plug their nose and deal with it and get involved. Yeah, no, I agree. And I do think we need good people. Now, Joey, let me ask you this question, because you're in Montgomery. Mm -hmm. You do a, a, a talk swamp. show that is the highest rated talk show in Montgomery. He's award winning, too. And award winning. Yeah. So <laughs> you're right there where the people who operate in Montgomery listen to you. Yes, sir. How have you seen them subtly, not so subtly? What's the ways they have interacted or maybe tried to influence you or have they? Um, generally, they don't try to influence me, I, and that's because I purposely put off a sort of I don't want to be your. So friend. they haven't sent you hookers? <laughs> no, not not yet. No, no Madison Cawthorn parties. <laughs> no, none of that. No, no orgies. None of that. No. That sort of thing. No, but the the folks I've met that are my true local representatives, you just at most the influence is just being friendly. Like, yeah. hey, come to my business, come to my store, or hey, you want to go grab a drink? Like, it's nothing overt, and I get the sense that anything overt would be frowned on, or frowned upon, and it's more people build relationships, they go through cycles together, and then when your buddy's in that position and needs your help, they kind of come calling on you. That's mostly how they've approached yeah. me, and it's never felt even inappropriate. It's just I'm getting to know these people. But you and I both talked, and Brian, <laughs> as well, uh, for example, in, in the in the before the Senate primary, we had a chance to meet and spend time with Katie Britt, with Mo Brooks, with Mike Durant, all likable people. Yeah, yeah. I was going to take it there, too. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you find yourself going, oh, I like all of you. I, hate I don't want any of them to lose. Yeah, yeah, I don't want anybody to lose, but somebody's got to. And, and sometimes, though, they end up proving at least the people around them to go to your case. Yeah. And you want to go, oh, boy, I sure like this person, but I hate the team around them. And I, you know, yeah. nothing would make me happier than to see those guys lose. Yeah. Uh, but you hate it because, for the most part, they really are people that you, and they wouldn't be there if they weren't likable people. Right. I mean, you know, curmudgeonly, except for Mo Brooks. <laughs> I was going to no, say. You know. <laughs> uh, no, and Mo's actually likable. Yeah. I do like, but, but, you know, his personality's a little he, bit. He, he doesn't have that charm, you know, that a lot of politicians have, and, and Katie Britt is chocked full of it. If if if, if Kay Ivey is Meemaw, yeah. you'd never call Mo Brooks Papaw. You yeah. know, I mean, right. it's just, you, you, best he's Uncle Mo. Yeah. But. My sense of, like, if you go through those three, like, my sense of Mike Durant is he is who he is like and but he's also very off air like when you're just hanging out with him he's very uh terse like he doesn't continue to be he's not verbose he doesn't talk your ear off he kind of answers straightforward it's what you would expect with that guy and he likes the things you think you'd expect um we were talking about the new space race and private sector he always wanted to do that with mo brooks my favorite story about him off air is he he comes in for an in-studio interview i meet him at the door y'all both been there and he immediately, as I open the door for him, looks to his right behind our lobby counter, and it's a. And he's like, "What are those?" And I look over, and I'm like, they're donuts, Congressman. And he goes, "What are they for?" I'm like, "The salespeople put it in business. Do you want some?" And he goes, "Yeah, hold on, let me run to my car to go get a can of Coke." He literally sprints to his car. It's not just you know him saying, "Run!" Runs back in. He drinks the entire can of Coke, eats six Krispy Kreme glazed donuts, 
And I can't fault that. <laughs> and my and like I also the same thing with uh, with Katie Brett. I don't know if I've told this in a while. Like I got to know her. I did a lot of these getting to know her, her mm. interviews in June, July, September, August. We did one every month. And I guess it was the first time meeting us around Christmas when she was busy. She shows up in our window, gives Eddie donuts because, you know, he's always eating donuts, gives me ice cream. It's like, thanks, Katie. That's so sweet. Here's what I'll say about her. And it's not a knock on her character. It's that every time I was talking to Katie, I felt like I wasn't getting the full story. Like, sit down and talk to me like Mm -hmm. I'm an adult and stop trying to sell me to vote for you. And I, I got a little frustrated with that. Mo, maybe to his discredit is just he says whatever i mean very intense yeah yeah there are times where i'm like stop trying to sell me yeah, he, he would yeah. do it the opposite way where he wouldn't shut up arguing about a particular policy or point and again durant would just i'd ask him a question sometimes his answer would be yes yes <laughs> no yeah. I, I do think <laughs> there was a certain naivete about mike durant running for office I uh i don't think he fully understood or grasped the level of competition that he was going to be into uh, and as we had that sort of after the primary interview that I did with him, as he kind of expressed a lot of things that you wanted to say, well, Mike, that's the way it is in politics. Maybe you should have run for a lesser office first to, to get a feel for what this looks like. Yeah. Um, and then, and it was tough too, cause he, you know, his, his consultants were doing a fabulous job in the beginning. He was up, you know, 33 yeah. to, you know, 33 and the yeah. next person was at 20 looked like he was just going to sail in and then boom, you know, and, and I do he think he didn't know how to play when the negative attacks came, he didn't know how to respond. Right. Well, and he also early on when the negative attacks came, it was like the, the people were like, Oh, whatever. And they, and it was like, whatever they said about him bounced off of him and yeah. actually made him stronger. And then there was such an onslaught of negative ones that, that it eventually took him down and he continued the strategy of trying to let it bounce off of him. Well, so and it was such a shame to watch because <clears throat> I, I took the time before I first interviewed him and I listened to the audiobook uh, over the weekend of it. And if folks have not listened or read his book in the company of heroes, he's got another one, but that one in particular is about his time in Mogadishu as a POW. And it, number one, it was very surreal because big part of the book is wanting to get back to his son, Joey. And he's reading it himself. He's like, I get back to Joey. And I'm like, all right, but you hear what this man <laughs> went through and I, I nothing but respect for him. Yeah. And, and it's not just what he went through. It's, the way he commemorated the fallen who protect him in those moments, uh, how God graced him. like And to see that guy, who's obviously, he might be smarter than all three of us, just the way he's, to get where he was as a night stalker, to start that business from scratch in military contracting, to see that guy have to go through sort of the behind the scenes, the negative side of politics, it was really disappointing. And we both talked to him. I, I didn't know what to say to him because yeah. he uh, part of me wanted to say, well, I told you so. Did yeah. you not know this and, was coming? But I felt really bad for the guy. And I think that's my peak disgust is you can take someone who's like a legitimate war hero, incredible human being, yeah. amazing businessman, prisoner of war. And again, it's not even like the John McCain. Like John McCain did a whole bunch of things to bring on some of the ire that came at him. But he was yeah. a war hero as well. Mike, up to this point, hadn't done anything to draw the ire. And his character was assassinated. And he was just... You know, I mean, it was horrible. And you look at someone who has been, you know, crashed a helicopter in Mogadishu and was stormed by armed, angry Somalians and taken prisoner with like his leg sticking out of the back, like compound fracture and all this other stuff. And he's been through that. And I, I would bet and argue if you asked him, you know, if you compared that experience to the one he just went through, that they're actually comparable. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, and, we say the old sticks and stones may break my bones. In his case, you know, clubs, whatever, but words will never hurt me. I think he would say exactly the opposite. Yeah. Go back and break my bones because these yeah. words really did hurt. Yeah. And really, if, for anybody to think, and again, that's over, that's fine, but just in looking back, to think that a, a war hero would be anti-Second Amendment or somehow want to confiscate guns from American citizens when— a thirty-second, you know, search of that clip would tell you that's not what he was what what he was actually talking about. But he just seemed to not know how to sell that to people to get that across. And um, again, a lie repeated enough becomes the truth, and that's right. unfortunate. Do y'all? Can I, if I could ask a question? Do y'all are y'all surprised by the turnout? Not just like in the the runoff and the primary. Well, the Democrats that showed up. Well, we, we, yeah, I'm sure. Oh, we okay. Talk about that. <laughs> but I mean, it, the, what, at most 20% of the state? I, I can't yeah, remember. 23%. 23%, 23% of the state. 
Yeah, and it, I, I look, what is the other 77% doing? Well, and, yeah. and the worst is going to be about today. 10% today. Yeah, today they were saying, you know, when, when the Secretary of State said 8 to 14%, well, before he said 24 to 30, it was 23. So when he's saying 8 to 14, I think 8 will be the, the number. Yeah. Uh, and I know, uh, again, it's, uh, and I don't know if that's the lack of any candidate to really reach a large number of people. Uh, I, I loved the the, the quote uh, or the debate between uh, Secretary of State uh, candidates uh, Jim Ziegler and Wes Allen. Jim Ziegler said, "If I'm Secretary of State, I will do everything I can to encourage people to go vote." Mm-hmm. Wes Allen said, "That's not the job of the Secretary of State. That's the job of the candidate to get people motivated to go out and vote." You know, we we can argue either way, but I I, I do wonder if there's just some sort of a malaise that people nobody just really captured people's attention enough to say I'm getting behind them. And I would say it's a lack of ci- like understanding of civics, and so it's a yeah, it's a failure true. in our education system. Um, and I'm guilty of it to the nth degree. Before starting 1819, like I realized that the strategy of culture winning is is making your people in place here in Alabama better. And I, it was so bad, I didn't even know who my state senator was, you know, because I was focused on, you know, who my United States senator was, who, who, what, what congressman, whatever, um, president, really, that was the main focus is who's the president. And you, you don't even really pay attention. And so you start talking about maybe some of these down ballot, you know, primary runoff. It's just like, what, what is that? They don't even know. I thought voting was in November. What are we doing? It's May. What, there's something else in June. I don't understand. Hmm. And they, they don't understand. The, and I remember sitting down with extremely intelligent, responsible, wealthy people, you know, recently and, and going through. He's like, so so what happens in the primary? OK, so it's it's Republicans and the Democrats are picking who their person is going to be in November. So, you know, and, and just like the, the concept just didn't click. Yeah. And it's because we just don't know, like unless you jump into the game, it's like if you've never played football before, you're like, why are those people hitting those people? Why is he throwing that leather thing over there? Why are these convicts out there? Yeah. <laughs> <Andy Griffith>. yeah. <laughs> well, I think part of it, too, is the, the political process in the South, uh, in Alabama, and maybe this is a good thing, uh, has been sanitized in the sense you don't have the same sort of populace, say, like George Wallace threatening barbed wire enemas. Excuse me, pardon me. Yeah. And I think that, that got people riled up. It's a lot of fun, but it it led folks to kind of a corner where I don't think they wanted to go back. And that's why you see, like, even Kay Ivey would do these appeals with that ads, all the ads she ran. I know how much you love those, Brian. But, no, she, I think, hit that sweet spot of it's not populist in the sense of a, a George Wallace or a Huey Long, but it's it's cartoonish, it's kind of fun, makes you, you chuckle. Langhorn. Right, exactly. And I, I think there's something about that that old-school political style that did encourage a lot of energy, got people engaged, and uh, it, it went away for whatever reason. Yeah, I don't know, but I know twenty three percent is not good, and no. I and 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 I'll admit I was flat out wrong. Like I was predicting on your show, I predicted much higher because you know he said it was going to be twenty four to thirty one percent or twenty three to thirty one percent or whatever John Merrill did, um, and uh, I thought because here we are in this cultural moment where you have you know COVID business closures, COVID forced masking, COVID forced vaccinations. LGBT stuff getting taught in schools, tranny stuff being taught in schools, you know, what very likely could have been a stolen election, right? So there's all this stuff that has everyone riled up and seething, and then 23% of people show up to vote. And it's like, all right, what, what did I miss? So I thought we were going to hit like 40, 40-something percent was my <laughs> prediction based off of how angry everyone was. Yeah. And again, everyone's always angry, but it was it's like next level right but again, now. Again, that, that's the flaw in all of us. The people we are circles of are the people that are going to get out and vote and right. do that. There's a great number, obviously, of people out there that are going to the store, going to their jobs, raising their kids, going to ball games. Oh, we got to vote. Uh, well, my vote doesn't matter. I'll go on. Of course, if you're in that Auburn Opelika election where one vote made the difference, you figure, oh, well, my vote could have counted. But uh there is just sort of a passivity among people that almost, and, and I think that's also the danger of being a one-party state. I think that adds to it of, well, whoever gets Republican votes going to win, and the Republicans are all the same, whether they are or not, we can debate, but I think in the general mind out there, and it's just, there's not a real uh, sort of 
personal threat to, to, to this election. Well, I was, was thinking the exact same thing, a normalcy bias, to where it's, you know, there are plenty of things to criticize about Alabama's government, plenty of things. But to the everyday person, is it a crisis moment for them? Right. Are they, you know, their everyday life seems fine. There might be good and bad to it, suffering and, and whatnot. How much can you blame on politics? And until you wake people up, I don't think you're going to see that sort of enthusiasm and that energy. Yeah. And I think one of the things that the, the API scorecard um, revealed this last uh, legislative session is that a lot of conservatism is social and not fiscal. Right. And so what you see is people that are like, yeah, I don't, you know, want no trannies in my kid's bathroom. And it's like, well, I mean, yeah, I get that. Who, right. You know, you can't blame that. Yeah. Right. Um, but, but then when it's like um, the fact that the budget has been record budgets, you know, three years in a row or four years in a row or whatever it is, and that we had a $1.5 billion surplus supplemental budget of one. That means they took $1.5 million more than they were supposed to. That's theft. Uh, at that point, and rather than giving it back to us, they distributed it out whimsically to their special interest groups rather than doing a, a, a grocery tax break for a year or three years because it would have been $600 million a year mm -hmm. for three years. They could have get, gotten rid of the grocery tax for three years and evenly distributed that money back to the people, figured out some way to cut taxes, some way to do school choice, some way to do something like that. All these things that aren't you know, trainees and the Pledge of Allegiance, right? Like that's like those things just are like real humdingers and it's funny, <laughs> the 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 things that get people excited, like you know, we're going to make sure that everyone does the Pledge of Allegiance, America. Yeah, that's what we need. We do Pledge of Allegiance. Instead of, well, actually, I think <clears throat> maybe getting rid of the grocery tax would be a good yeah. idea. No, no, Pledge of Allegiance. And it's like, I mean, I'm all about the Pledge of Allegiance. I, I like it too, but we need to do something well, that's actually going to do something. I, and this is just a, maybe the contrarian or the the mischievous person in me. I love to point out especially to you know, God-fearing American red, white, and blue conservatives, that I believe the Pledge of Allegiance was popularized, if not written, by a Christian socialist named Francis Bellamy. Like, so this, the whole point of this was to sort of, you know, socialize. And it, I don't know, it's interesting how, uh, at least me growing up around conservatives and coming of age politically around conservatives, it's like history stops once you get to Goldwater. Yeah. And then we might remember the founders, too. I'm like, what happened in that interviewing period? What happened to the right? What happened to uh, conservatives? And actually, that's those are my favorite people to read, the so-called old right. Uh, one guy who emphasizes or epitomizes this really well is uh, uh, Bob Taft, Mr. Republican. Like, he didn't want to go into NATO, but then he was hardcore on social issues back home. And I just, am I wrong that it's like history stops at Goldwater and then we skip to the founders? Like, I, I was never brought up in... And Reagan, of course, you're is going backwards. You're going talking about yeah, history going back to 1960 or whatever right. it was with Goldwater. Okay, um, it's like the country was refounded in the 60s. Yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting because the South was so democratic right. up until really until 2010, and and coming out of there. But in the 70s, it began at least on a national level changed, and the parties flip flop a couple of times, and uh, uh, that's an interesting point. I'd have to really kind of think about. I mean, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. <clears throat> was uh, on everybody's, you know, in the South, particularly farm, rural, my, my grandparents, he was the saint. Yeah, that was like the yeah. K. Carl uh, JFK with or Martin, Martin Luther, Luther King, King Jr. with yeah, the two and Kennedys. The two Kennedys. Uh, that's, that's what Franklin Delano Roosevelt was. You didn't say anything bad about Franklin Delano Roosevelt, but yet he expanded government like probably nobody had, certainly not up to his point. Um, and that's the, you know... Again, it's it's, and I've used this line with Brian before. I know that that Huey Long, Kingfish, governor mm -hmm. of Louisiana, that said when he got caught stealing, yeah, I stole, but I stole for you. Well, Richard Shelby, well, yeah, I borrowed. I, I put our country in in, in dangerous economic, but I borrowed for you. You know, yeah. so that's okay. That's what we want. Well, you brought the money back to us, so that's you know, you you wrecked our future. But hey, we've got a lot of good stuff because you did that. We built this library. I put my name on it. May live forever. <laughs> Well, and then I'm just wondering, and maybe I'm, I don't hope I'm not a catastrophist, but I'm not the only one saying this. It feels like we're on the cusp of something like the New Deal again, where think it's going to be such a big moment to where things will be shifted in Washington, D.C., and Alabama and all state governments are going to have to react to this big shift in Washington, D.C. And I don't know which way it's going to go, but something's well, got to give here eventually. Yeah, we, we have created a culture that is so dependent on government to solve our problems that we don't know how to solve our problems ourselves anymore. And that's yeah. that's the danger. And I do think that, you know, and you even say the Pledge of Allegiance, you know, I pledge allegiance to the flag. Well, 
I'm not a lead, I'm not, I don't I'm, I don't have any allegiance to a flag. I've got it to a country, to an ideal, the Constitution, yeah. if anything. And yet that that I could make that case of what you're saying a minute ago that we're starting to hone in on our replacing symbolism, idolatry, and government as opposed to our own independence and our own looking out for ourselves. I think party politics is 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 strange too because and and this is a, a theory that I'm working out and Ray can correct me if I'm wrong. I mentioned it a little bit, uh, maybe last podcast or one of the ones before, but historically you had in the state of Alabama and really in the South, you had Republicans that was big business and you had Democrats, which were the salt of the earth, God fearing, hardworking, you know, people who built everything that worked at the big businesses. Right. And there was a diametrical opposition between big business and working man. And then the left moved so far to the left, they abandoned the working man. And then the Republican Party was like, hey, come on in. We've got room for you. And so the working man, the hardworking, you know, middle class person, uh, you know, lower middle class, middle class working person is now in the same political party with big business that they used to be diametrically opposed to. So there is such a separation between the two people who make up this party now that they used to be two separate political parties. And so now within this one party, there's still two parties that are at war with each other. And so you have big business in this state whose interests are not the same interests of the people. And the people have interests that are not, you know, of the interests of, of, of the big business. And the big, big business is the one pulling the strings and making things happen in Montgomery. And that's why we don't see the people represented, but businesses are being represented. And then they say that that's Republican. And, and that's the segue to the question I wanted to ask <clears throat> both of you guys. Th- this election to me speaks more to a a rift in the Alabama GOP. I think the Alabama State Party has some real problems because there's such a clear division. Maybe it's exactly what you're saying, maybe more ideological, I don't know. But I just get this sense there is a such a split in the Republican Party that I, the Republican Party may have a hard time getting its act together and pulling this thing back together. It, unfortunately, the Democratic Party is not strong enough to step up and take advantage of it. That's what yeah. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. No, and I think this riff goes back a ways. It reminds me of the that cycle with the Tea Party's rise in yeah. 2010. And then I remember a, a local activist, y'all know her, Becky Garrison, mm-hmm. in the Wetumpka area, Tea Party Becky. I can remember her up there in that committee room saying, with I'm With Congress, that was yeah. so awesome. Yeah, it was an amazing thing. I used to play that clip with the John Adams miniseries music underneath it, and she, like, can you send that to me? Yeah, sure, Becky. But I love that she <laughs> ran for Congress, and she ran against Martha Roby. I like Martha, and this is a common theme, by the way. We meet these folks. They are charming. Yeah. They're smart people. I like Martha. But Martha was very clearly sort of going along with John Boehner. It's been a while since I've said that name, the inexplicably mm-hmm. orange man. Trump's orange this was explicable. Boehner. Starts it was crying for no reason. I don't know if it was whiskey or carrots <laughs> or whatever, and I hear Boehner was a good time. But that said, Martha was kind of going along with the establishment, and I get why she was playing that game, and she beat Becky Garrettson. And so these, and I believe at the, that night when she won, we beat back the politics of anger. Oh, I'm like, well, thinking back, well, Trump's right around the corner. Good luck with keeping the anger away. But I, this riff has been there, I think, a while. And it's interesting. Uh, AUM just did a, a poll on that the Senate runoff. And aside from you know what their actual polls were showing, the breakdown demographically was fascinating to me that I think it's a class thing. I'm not calling for class warfare, but it looked like the college educated, the more wealthy are going for, say, Katie Britt. More your working class, maybe high school diploma, they're more going for Mo Brooks. And I found that fascinating because it seems to track going back several cycles. It's not just about the candidates. Which is your theory, exactly. You know, that the the sort of working class, blue collar guys that are out there and feel like they don't have a voice are angry. And then the the, the big business, which is we're the ones that really know how to run this country and you need to trust us on this. Yeah. We'll take care uh, of you. And we'll take care of you. Uh, and that's the, that's the problem there. And certainly Democrats are not the answer. It, it, we can see other States where they are screwed up, but in this state, the Democrats just don't matter. It's really kind of a two party system within one party. But, and then you look at what big business corporate interests. And so, They're supposed to be, you know, again, Republican, but they are the ones because of the corporate interests that are more susceptible to woke mobbery. Right. And, you know, doing the, you know, pronouns Mm. or doing the the rainbow stuff or putting the flag up to show solidarity or, you know, the Ukrainian flag or whatever. Right. And they're susceptible to that because they feel that that pressure of and again, 
it's ridiculous that corporations feel the pressure because what it is is there's literally um, like a call center that, that these radical leftists set up with like 20 people that have multiple phone numbers and they have a thing that changes your voice to different pitches and then they'll just sit there and call those corporations and tell them that you know they're gonna you know raise raise cane and tell all their you know whatever blah 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 and and they don't like pressure because they got to keep their stock price at a certain rate and so they're like well we can't have that we just have to say pronouns <laughs> we just have to put the gay flag up on our thing okay right and so that's kind of the, the problem with with big corporations is they're in a weird susceptible position to be able to hold the line on social issues and social issues obviously matter to that working class. Um, part. Anyway, I mean, we could sit and, and philosophize. That's what happens when we get with Joey. We start philosophizing and writing in cursive. Sure. Well, the next thing you know, we'll be <laughs> quoting H.L. Mencken, but, yeah, uh, no, which actually, <laughs> and then the very next day, Amy Beth Shaver is going to quote H.L. Mencken. But, uh, so it's <laughs> interesting to have it, it, two columns. But um, you saw, or tell me, Joey, what you saw from, we all got calls from people about, hey, do you know this? Or, hey, you need to report this. Or, hey, I mean, how much of that did you hear? And how much of that was almost laughable in some <clears throat> cases? How much of it was like, hmm, will you go on the radio and talk about that? And they won't. Um, my general rule is if I can't corroborate it, if I can't confirm it, I'm not going to run with it. And even even if I can well, corroborate sure. it, well, obviously, like, well, I'll just say there are some folks in, in the radio industry, I'm not calling out any local hosts, but in the media industry, they'll just run with stuff to see people react to it. And I'm not that way. And then even if it's something seems true, like it smells true, if it's, let me go back a cycle. Somebody brought up stuff about Bradley Burns family. And I'm without going into detail, I'm like, I don't want to touch this. Yeah. I don't know who this person is. And anytime that sort of, I that family stuff, particularly with Mike Durant, Maybe go, maybe this is true, but I don't feel like I'm getting the whole story, and it's not my place or any of the voters to sort of hash out this family history. So I, I got that stuff. And then you'll get the stuff like Trump said this. I went down to Mar-a-Lago, and Trump said this or that. Some of it I hope's true because it's hilarious, but it's also uh, double-dealing at times. Now, I, I also have gotten the reputation where a lot of folks uh, will not bring me stuff because I'm, like, I'm not going to yeah. even entertain it. Like I'll, I'm more, you've been on my show. It's more about having a good time. The heartbeat of the show is me giving Eddie crap. Uh, like it's us having fun. And I think about that working class guy <laughs> yeah. that just want to have fun. And then we bring in the politics and the information. So I don't think I have a rep and it's one I've actually worked hard to, to build. I'm not the straight newsman. I'm more your entertainer commentator. So I don't often get all these, Hey, Joey, listen to this tip. Um, other than occasionally the really juicy family stuff that I don't like to touch or the, you know, the rumor mill, especially yeah. around Trump. I, um, so, uh, you know, the relationship well, and I think our listeners are starting to know the relationship between Ray and I, that I'm the kind of hyperbolic over the top, you know, mm -hmm. um, push the envelope guy and raise the kind of more mature guy that, that reels me in. I get him pumped up and it's this good, it's, it's actually been really good. And I think served us really well. Um, and so I was kind of not like mean critical, but like, you know, Ray doesn't want to do this or Ray doesn't want to run that. Ray doesn't believe this. And like when we first started and now that I'm on the other side of a political season with all these people who bring me these stories and it's just one thing after another and then they want to use us. And then yep. you realize that people are bringing you stuff. And, and at first you're like, oh, maybe it is. And then you try and track it down. There's nothing there. And it's just like 10 times a day you get a story that these people think is gospel truth. And then when you're like. Yeah, I don't think we're going to, you know, and then they're like, oh, you guys are, you're, and it's like, you're afraid, yeah. you're a tool, you're yeah. whatever. We're a tool either one way or the other, we're yeah. the tool. And, and uh, again, I know with one story, and, and I absolutely believe it, but nobody would put their name on it. Hmm. And if they're not willing to put your name on it, I'm not going to be hanging out here because our reputation's on the line. Yeah. I've got to worry about that. So, well, did y'all get, and this is, it's somewhat what you asked, but it's kind of the, it's the opposite or the, the inversion of it. That the moments where you feel like campaigns or certain interests are like, could you not say that? Could you self-censor? And we'll be friends yeah. as long as you... And I've felt those pressures more than anything yeah. else. Interesting. Thankfully, I think we came out pretty clear that we were going to be the not that. So we haven't... I don't think... You know, we've had some groups that wanted to meet with us and do the whole, you know, we want to advertise with you. And you're like, no, thanks. You know, right? Um, that have kind of uh, prevented, I think, hopefully prevented uh, a lot of that stuff. And it is, I mean... Um, when you have a radio show, when you have a publication, there is a lot of sway and, and power that comes with that. And one of the things that I like about you, Joey, and, and why you work well with us and we work well together is that the truth is the standard. That's it. That's the only thing we're after. We're not out to please anybody. We're not trying to make friends. 
we're not doing anybody any favors. We're serving the people of Alabama, and that's it. And and um, as long as that that's always the focus, um, I, I think we end up in a good place. Yeah, and I do think that's part of what eighteen nineteen was about. When we started it was to was to just pursue the truth and to be down the middle and be fair. And yeah. Uh, yeah. and I think it's interesting. I'll, I'll say this. You know, we've I've had emails from people going, "Hey, I thought you guys were going to be a conservative side, and you're not. You're trying to play it down the middle. Cancel my e- subscription." Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and then, you know, and, and that's okay. Uh, and I've, you know, we've had people all over the board, but that it's like when I was a sports writer, people would say, Oh, you love Alabama. And, oh no, you love Auburn. I go, well, if you got two different opinions, I must be right where I need to be, which is down the middle. Well, and I appreciate that y'all give me plenty of writing room to write pretty much what I want. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. All, anything I want. And, and I really appreciate that platform and what I like Again, one of my favorite lines, uh, the truth is rarely pure and never simple. And so to get to the truth often, like good, hard truths, uh, it requires discussion. I think most people actually learn the truth by talking with family members and friends, thinking out loud. And I think, you know, especially when I read the other opinion writers, mm-hmm. there's this back and forth and a lot of different perspectives, but they all seem to be based in, I'm doing this in good faith. Uh, I'm trying to add to the conversation. Maybe us adding together will get approximate something close to truth. Yeah, I, I've had columns because I'm responsible for editorial page, yours, others, where I'm uncomfortable with them sometimes. Mm. But I also think, but that's a voice that maybe needs to be heard. If for no other reason, somebody go, I don't believe that, you know, that's ridiculous. Or maybe it's, I hadn't thought of that. Maybe I need to consider it. So, well, and I I didn't think I'd tell the story publicly, but I will. I went to Montgomery (laughs) County GOP uh, event. It was at the Biscuit Stadium. And I saw the guy who was easily reelected, uh, Steve Marshall. He walked up and he said, Joey, I don't think it's, uh, I'm not betraying anything here because he said it about me. I really appreciate what you're writing. It's different. It's more thought provoking than some stuff out there. And I looked at him and kind of joked. I kind of looked around and I said, I know you're the attorney general of the state and you're a Republican, but I can't believe they let an anarchist in a GOP event. And <laughs> Steve started chuckling. Yeah. And I, I told him, and I'll say this here, that I think wherever you end up, first principles thinking is all the rage these days, and I think it is a very healthy exercise for people to go through, especially when the state seems to be plagued by the sort of an inertia or malaise that people aren't engaged. Getting back to first principles and riling people up on things they can, they've maybe thought about themselves. We go, ah, that's the political class has already dealt with that. I think it stirs people up, even if like you know, I, I write things that. I go, well, I'm going to make the argument, but I'm one yeah. guy. And I also understand in terms of my ideas, I'm very much in a small, small minority. So it takes all types. And I just try to add that contribution. Well, you know, one of the, again, having spent most of my life writing, it, the, the best thing for me is when somebody walks up to me and says, you said what I was thinking, but I didn't know how to say it. I mean, that that's really what you want yeah. is for yeah. somebody to go, that's what I'm trying to say. I had a conversation with a friend of mine the other night who is uh, a gun-owning, toting liberal, you know, but in Alabama, that's not so unusual. So she and I have, you know, political differences, but we could have a great conversation. But I did tell her at one point, I said, what you just said is exactly what I was trying to figure out how to articulate, and you articulated it well. And that's that's the kind of conversation we need to have more often with, with people who are not like us, but willing to engage and say, okay, let me hear what you're, where you're coming from, listen to where I'm coming from, and maybe... Maybe both of us change a little bit because of the conversation. Well, and what's great, too, is, like, there are practical truths in the world. Yeah. Like, you can come from whatever perspective, and China's now risen. They, You go through the history, they now are an economic powerhouse. They have a fourth aircraft carrier, yada, yada, yada. Like, I don't care where you come from, that's a real thing, and it has to be dealt with. I think that's actually something a lot of Americans, maybe that's what brings people together, is we used to be a country of like just practicality, literally the philosophy of pragmatism, and we just get the job done, whatever it takes. And I think we've been in this weird period of ideologies fighting. And uh, that I would love to see a rebirth of the deeper values with faith and also, and I say that, you know, maybe with my own journey, still not complete in that regard. But I would also love to see with a basis in the deeper values, getting back to just practically solving problems instead of the constant media wars we see. Uh, one of the uh, wall poster philosopher things, you know, from way back said, basically, I'm going to clean this up to heck with the credit, just get the job done. Hmm. I don't care who gets the credit for it, you know, and that's one of the things I think 
I've always tried to approach in, in the, the work that we do here is I don't care who gets credit. Let's just get it right. Let's, yeah. let's get it done right. And I wish we had more of that. And I think that used to be kind of the, the American way, if you will. Uh, or it was just leave me alone. Let me just go do my job. And, you know, if there's a war, then I want to hear from the federal government. Otherwise, right. just stay the heck away from me. Yeah. No, and I and I think that you that that is actually a, to some degree it's not it's not foolproof, but along party lines, like both parties across party lines, I guess I should say, not along, but across party lines, people want less government, people want to be left alone, people want less money taken out of their paychecks, people want safer schools and safer neighborhoods, like those basic things. And then I think both parties have been taken hostage to a certain degree. And I, I think we're also going through a revolution that isn't political but technological. Uh, like oh. a couple years ago, uh, and it's stuff that we're going to have to deal with. Like a couple years ago, there was this AI program that figured out it was this long problem that had been around since the 50s or 60s that, you know, here's how amino acids fold and create proteins. But it's like 10 to the 142nd possible combination. So this AI program was able to accurately predict these things. And somebody compared it to like when they unlocked the atom and the atomic bomb came. This is that for biology. And China and all these other places are dealing with that. But I, I bring it up in this conversation. I think the revolution in what we're doing here with podcasting and communications, it used to be only the big three networks. And now we it used to be 60 minutes, what, got 30 million people watching it? Mm -hmm. And everybody's looking at the same script. And now it, we're bound to have confusion and some tumult in the sense that now everybody's got their own category they can go to. But it's even now disintegrating from you know, Fox News versus MSNBC and CNN. It's not everybody's, you know, own podcast. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. It's just that once we kind of reorient ourselves and get on the other side of this tech revolution and communication, uh, we'll find our way. Uh, but right now, the old way is trying to hold on for dear life. Uh, I've, I've, you can see it. And they're, it's at times frustrating that everybody still looks at the New York Times and CNN as the, you know, Network or the paper, paper of record. record. Yeah. Yes. All the, you the know, old gray lady. Christopher Hitchens said this old line that he said, if he woke up in that line, all the news that's fit to print didn't bother him. That's he knows the day he should stop writing. Yeah. Um, so it, it, they've always been kind of over the top, obnoxious elitist, but they, you can tell they don't have the same power they used to. And that's a good thing. But there's millions of people who still buy into their narratives. And it's just a matter of coming out on the other side of this and continue to build out you know, platforms. And there's something about the packaging too. Like if it's on, you know, we talk about this, like say with Steve flowers, like he can write whatever he wants and it's gospel truth because he prints it. Like, so he's syndicated and people don't even know what this is. Syndicated columnist. He writes a column and then he sends it out and it goes to like 67, I think publications across the state, all these small local newspapers, the people reading it think Steve, Steve flowers must live in there. They have no idea who he is. They think he must be writing for their paper, right? That's the way it looks. Mm. It's printed in their paper in ink, and it's a paper that they've trusted for 30 years. So whatever he's saying is gospel truth. And so to me, the amount of power that comes with that is crazy. Um, and, and so packaging like that, you look at, you know, the New York Times, like people have seen that, and it's meant truth before. And there was a time when maybe it was more true than, than it is now. CNN, MSNBC, but specifically CBS, ABC, you know, the nightly news and those type of things. When it's packaged that way, our brains have like a default switch that just believes because it's packaged that way. And the same thing, there's a, a joke that talks about, you know, uh, if a person in a white coat comes in, you know, and says, hey, you know, bend over. I need to, you know, look, take a look. Mm -hmm. And they have a white coat on. You're like, oh, OK. You know, <laughs> but if someone comes in without a white coat, it's like, hey, Joey, uh, bend over. I need to take a look. And you're like, uh, no. yeah, you know, <laughs> so you're like, yeah, that's not going to happen. So there's just a way that our brains, they see yeah. certain things and, and it lets guard down. And and I think that they're going to take advantage of that until they're doing their best to ruin their ability to do that. Well, and again, historically, people don't realize the New York Times is the New York Times because it survived. Mm -hmm. At one time, there were 27 newspapers in New York City, all with very divergent opinions because they were all competing to sell. So their interpretations of news, their reporting was very, very different. Obviously, the city over time, we, we, you know, winnowed that down. The Times was the biggest survivor. You know, that's the only reason, and the Washington Post the same way. It's the only reason that becomes the paper of record. They survived. They had the money and the wherewithal to do that. 
Uh, and so they gain a certain amount of, you know, prestige because of surviving. Well, and, and I think they're, in a way, they have certain privileges other pub- publications. They survived and they also get uh, certain privileges from the government or from power that other places don't get in the sense that, like, I, on my, excuse me, pardon me, but on my show, I call it the Kislyak screw job. It's a, you know, to the Montreal screw job in wrestling with uh, Shawn Michaels and all that. But they took out using Ambassador Kislyak and leaked cables from most, some of the most secretive mm-hmm. programs the government has. These leaked cables to the Washington Post and to the New York Times. Your average paper is not going to get that. And any sort of conservative outlet is not going to get the same thing. If they did, the person who leaked it would probably be in jail the next day. And so, it's not just also communications. These places have survived. It's, I think people are rethinking communications. They're th- rethinking education. I, for instance, I love the story you told last week about the co-op, what you do with your kids. I think folks are applying that to young children as well as now the university system. And as people rethink these things, the sort of power centers that are unofficial are starting to be challenged. It's a very healthy thing. Yeah. And last thing, and we will have to close here, run out of time, but also the way that social media companies that are private companies Mm -hmm. are interacting with government and then government kind of blending themselves in and like, you know, taking cues, the, these private companies that control the flow of information are taking cues from the government. And then they basically have the benefit of, you can probably explain it better than me, Joey, that they're either a publisher or they're a a platform or a publisher. Yeah. And they and the as long as they take these cues from the government that's utilizing their power for their power, they'll continue to have that coveted status. But if they say no, we're not going to do that. Okay, well then we'll get rid of your. Is it Section two thirty one or what is the? Yeah, it's Section two thirty one. Is actually done in the early nineties because Congress tried to ban porn, which yeah. it makes sense, especially if you're an adult and you've been on the internet. Uh, and but the Supreme Court says you can't do that. We have this thing called the First Amendment. So they came up with this brilliant idea. Well, there are a lot of companies, I'm sure, internet companies that don't want porn on their site. Uh, these are, you know, the average American doesn't want to see this stuff. And so they gave them the power to censor. And they also gave them the power that you couldn't be sued if you took something down and you couldn't be sued if you left something up. And that was the the kind of middle ground. And that's why I always was confused when Trump wanted to remove it. I'm like, well, you're going to get sued if Twitter's going to get sued either way. Mm-hmm. Maybe the point was to take them down. But yeah, it's a... Uh, it's, it's something that needs to be done with a scalpel instead of a sort of a hammer. And I don't know if it's building out new platforms or if it's somebody like Elon Musk just block buying the platforms out. Uh, I think that's what we're up against. And again, there's an interview I just watched with uh, Mark Andreessen, a venture capitalist who's been just picking winners for a while now, especially in the internet space. And he said, I, we would fund things like this new financial technology, thinking we're going to take on the big established banks like Goldman and Merrill Lynch and whatnot. And then we realize, oh, we're not competing against private companies. These folks got you know the Federal Reserve right mm-hmm. there. They got the Treasury Department. It's a revolving door. They do the same thing with education or with media. And they realize that the, the people that survive then use that power to sort of entrench themselves with the rest of the power structure. And again, it's a good thing that it, it's sort of going away. And it's not a new narrative. I remember when Rush Limbaugh died, I started to look at how the media talked about him for years because I was not a Rush listener. I was too young. My dad watched Mm -hmm. the show a good bit. And after he passed, I came across this Time magazine cover that showed Limbaugh there in all his glory with the cigar in his mouth and smoke billowing up. And the the sub-headline was, the subtitle was, the rise of talk radio and electronic populism is a threat to our democracy. I'm like, oh, they've been doing this for several years. After the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, Clinton comes out. What does he talk about? Uh, he says, we need to get rid of all these assault weapons and talk radio. And so the agenda has always been, no, we get to say whatever we want. We'll put it under the label of we're objective and fair and professional journalists. And if you challenge the narrative from the official entities, uh, well, we'll try to destroy you and use whatever inciting event, whatever means possible. And it is remarkable to see that they haven't been able to. Limbaugh started it. And you remember the days when Bernie Goldberg was on the O'Reilly factor, liberal media bias. And now folks are like, it's not even bias. Y'all are just like unofficial centers of power. It's it's really interesting to watch it happen, especially accelerate in the last five, ten years. Yeah. Crazy time to be alive. 
What is it? It's a threat to our democracy? Gosh, man, every time I hear that, I just want to, well, I'm not going to make any hyperbolic statements well, like I did last week that got Dean Odell well, posted it. It's interesting. <laughs> you took that clip out when I said, you know, the thinking about all the different Senate communication or, or you know, communications between Trump and the Senate. No, Trump likes me. No, Trump likes me. And I'm like, I'm going to smash my face in a broken glass <laughs> and that whole yeah. thing. <laughs> so I got to watch my hyperbole. Well, and they, you said something earlier about, you know, with term limits, it would just be the administrative people running everything. What if we actually elected a president, senators, and congressmen and said, I don't care what any of you folks think. I'm going to do what I promised the people back well, home. And that, that's right. Well, what do they call that? They don't call that democracy. They call that populism. Yeah. Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump. And I, I will say that's one of the things it takes sending people to Congress who can stand up to the, the bureaucracy that's there and say, you're not the one who's elected. I was. Therefore, I want you to do this. We will do this. I don't care if it's not how we've done it before. This is what I want done. And they have to do that. Yeah. But if they'll try their best not to. And that's that's the shame. And uh, that's where the bureaucrats and the size of government is really scary. And it, it just doesn't seem to stop. It just keeps expanding. And one thing that's really cool is it's not just people on the right seeing this. There's a guy I love to listen to named Eric Weinstein. Uh, managing director for Teal Capital, I believe, but he's always described himself as a socialist. He's always been kind of a technocratic man of the left. And he talks about how it's like we've built this house over generations, and now there are all these light switches you're flicking on. You don't even know what it does anymore. Yeah. It's time to remodel things and do it in a sober way, in a smart way that isn't just serving uh, certain powers. Well... We are, uh, are we ten minutes we, over our time. We, we are. We're right at we're right at ten <laughs> minutes past. So that means that we uh, now is a good time to stop. Yeah. But no, I think that's uh, that's exactly right, Joey. Thank you so much for joining us and coming on. Thank Great you conversation. All. Yeah, really, well, I love doing your show for this reason. I love the yeah. fact that we can just have these free flowing top of the head conversations. I always wondered what it would be like to not have to hit a break with oh, Joey. It's great. Yes. <laughs> I can keep going if you yeah, want. Yeah, I know. Um, well, I, and I'd love Probably to. Joe we'll, Rogan, four-hour podcast. Yeah, no, yeah. we could totally do that. Um, you'd be the only one possibly uh, partaking we'll of the marriage. Some whiskey and cigars in here. Okay, we'll be there all right. we go. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, um, thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, and again, 1819news.com. Subscribe. Sign up for the newsletter. Uh, get that in your inbox every morning. Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, YouTube. Go there. Subscribe. Don't miss out on anything. And until next time, put your trust in God and keep your powder dry. Yeah.